Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a series of podcasts presented by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. In this episode, Olga Sudi talks about the Noguchi Museum in Long Island City, designed and created by the Japanese-American sculptor Osama Noguchi in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Sudi, an anthropologist at the University of Amsterdam, is the author of Japanese New York, an intimate ethnographic portrait of Japanese creative migrants living and working in New York City. Here, she uses the example of Osama Noguchi to discuss the larger community of Japanese artists who have made New York home to one of the largest overseas Japanese populations in the world. For more podcasts like this and for more Gotham Center programming, visit us at gothamcenter.org and sign up to our mailing list. Thanks for listening. The Osama Noguchi Museum in Long Island City was established and designed by the 20th century American sculptor Isama Noguchi in 1985 to house and display key works representative of his career. Comprised of both indoor galleries and a sculpture garden, the museum is home to the largest collection of Noguchi's work in the world and is an important resource for researchers and the public alike. Noguchi himself was born in Los Angeles in 1904 to a Japanese father and an American mother. He grew up in Japan until his early teens, when he returned to the United States for his schooling. After initially studying pre-medicine at Columbia University, Noguchi went on to study sculpture in New York and Paris. One of the most striking things about Noguchi's career and life is the internationalist spirit that they reflect. As an American artist of Japanese descent, he traveled and lived in New York, Paris, Mexico, California, and Hawaii. In his later years, he maintained studios in both New York City and Japan. At the same time, he lived at a moment in history when, as someone of Japanese descent, his ethnic and racial background was foregrounded as a problematic aspect of his identity. Today, New York City is home to one of the largest expatriate Japanese populations in the world, with some estimating it to be as high as 100,000 people. Although the dominant image of the Japanese person abroad is that of a tourist or business person, a considerable segment of the Japanese population in New York are artists. By artists, I'm referring to those who make art, like Noguchi did, but also anyone for whom creative and aesthetic expression is central to their work. So this also includes musicians, dancers, writers, fashion designers, textile designers, makeup artists, photographers, and the like. My research is on these migrant artists. As an anthropologist, I study the daily routines of these individuals, the work they do and their social lives, as well as the historical context in which New York City has come to be a prime destination for many Japanese who are young, creative, and ambitious. I first started studying Japanese artists in New York while in graduate school. As a student, my original interest now some 15 years ago, was an understanding Japan from a global perspective. Much scholarship was being written at the time about globalization and the increasing circulation of media, images, commodities, and people around the globe. When thinking about Japan on the move, scholars were focusing especially on the movement of Japanese popular culture like music and television, or commodities and fashion, from children's toys to youth street style around the world. Japan was seen as a kind of cultural superpower, much as it had been an economic one in previous decades. Engaging with this work and seeing so many Japanese people on the streets of Manhattan and Brooklyn who seemed to live there, I wondered how the movement of Japanese people fit into this story of cultural globalization. Why were they coming to New York? 
when Japanese creativity in art, fashion, design, and architecture were so celebrated abroad? And what did it mean to be a Japanese artist in New York City? Did national cultural identity matter in one's creative work? And how did this change if one moved countries? These were the questions that initially motivated my research. Japanese artists have been going to New York City since at least the late 19th century, before Noguchi's time. Unlike most Japanese migration, many of the early Japanese, primarily men who came to New York, were urban and upwardly mobile. Although many Japanese men ended up working in lower status jobs to get by, often in domestic service, literature and stories of Japanese who went to the West, that is, to the US and Europe, show how living abroad was associated by migrants with values like individual freedom and autonomy, whereas life at home was linked to notions of obligation and duty to family and nation. For instance, in one of his short stories called Awakening, published in 1907, based on his four years living in New York City, writer Nagai Kafu humorously recounts the adventures and hypocrisies of a Japanese manager as he explores the city's gritty subways and tenements, as well as a relationship with an American woman, experimenting with a life inaccessible to him in Japan. The United States, and New York City in particular, were upheld as symbols of progress and modernity in late 19th and early 20th century Japan. However, the migration of Japanese artists to New York City only grew to significant numbers later in the 20th century. Laws like the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1884 and the Immigration Act in 1924 prevented Asians from immigrating to the United States. During World War II, Japanese Americans were interred in camps across the United States, including Isama Noguchi, who was voluntarily interred in Boston, Arizona in 1942. People only started to come in larger numbers in the 1970s and 1980s, once a ban on international travel was lifted in Japan in 1964, and once airplane travel became more accessible with the rise of the commercial travel industry and the arrival of the jumbo jet in Japan in 1970. All of this, of course, also converges with New York's rise as a world art center from the 1960s onwards. Most Japanese artists who migrate to New York City today do so when they are relatively young, in their 20s and 30s. They tend to come from middle-class backgrounds and don't necessarily know much English or have many or any significant ties to the United States when they migrate or any job lined up. People often have some financial means when they arrive, either in terms of savings or family support, but this is usually limited. Their migration is open-ended. Most Japanese migrants eventually return to Japan, but their stays in New York are unplanned and can range from a few years to several decades. So why do people leave comfortable lives, family, and friends back at home to take these open-ended leaps into the unknown? What I found in my research was that for these Japanese, migration and creative work are fundamentally intertwined. Individuals often use the idiom of self-searching to describe their decisions to move and pursue an artistic career in New York City. But given that they leave lives in Japan behind and usually arrive in New York at an early stage in their careers, I think that what they are doing is better described as self-reinvention through art and migration. Japanese artists Think of New York as a kind of world stage, this is the actual term that they use, on which they reinvent themselves and seek to realize their artistic ambitions. At the same time, the idea of making it on the world stage alongside artists from around the globe and transcending the national stage of Japan 
is coupled with an equally strong idea about the possibility and appeals of starting life anew as an adult in a new place. Although the paths of arriving in New York City vary, all of them contrast New York's world stage with life in Japan, which they often see as restrictive and moribund in terms of their professional and personal ambitions. To illustrate, I want to talk about two of these various types of migrants. Some young Japanese already decide to devote their careers to art back at home, but for one reason or another are unable to accomplish this and migrate to New York City to try their hand there. For example, one artist I met is Asahi in his mid-30s. He tried to get into multiple art schools in Japan, but was not accepted at any of them. When I met him, he had been in the U.S. for 16 years. I asked him what would have happened to him had he stayed in Japan, and he replied, quote, I don't know, maybe I would have killed myself out of boredom or something, working as a salaryman, but I probably would have left at some point anyway. There are three main art schools in Japan. In Japan, you have to have connections to have shows, and I don't have connections, so it's harder. Artists also have to pay to hold exhibitions of their own work. I don't want to do that. To be an emerging artist in Japan, you have to win a prize or rent your own space, end quote. For Asahi, there were no other options he imagined for his life except to be an artist. He just couldn't do it back at home. Like many others, he imagined New York City to be a place of unfettered, equal opportunity for people like him, unlike what he saw as the hierarchical and exclusive Japanese art world. Another type of Japanese art artist in New York City comes to a creative profession and migration via a career change. These individuals are usually college-educated and had successful careers in Japan doing other things. I met artists who were former civil engineers, ad executives, magazine editors, who worked in the fashion business or in the corporate world. Yuko was one of these. She had been an accountant back in Japan for 10 years. At the time, in her mid-30s, she had a successful career and was also engaged to be married. However, she had a long-time curiosity about living abroad, which was nourished by her parents' youthful but never realized ambitions to live in Paris that they told her about when she was a child. Furthermore, she felt ground down by her long work hours and stressful commutes on the Tokyo trains. She eventually decided to leave her job and move to New York City to pursue a career in fashion that she had always dreamed of. She also left her relationship. After studying at the Parsons School of Design for another degree, she now works for a major American designer as a stylist. These two examples are success stories. Not everyone makes it. And many artists in New York City struggle for years, waiting to find the recognition and success they are looking for. We typically think that people who migrate do so because they want to improve their lives and access greater economic opportunities and social and economic security. What's interesting with these Japanese artists is that the reverse usually happens, and people take conscious voluntary steps down the socioeconomic ladder in the move from Japan to New York. Work in creative fields is notoriously competitive and often insecure and precarious. Artists usually make less and less regular income than those with similar educational backgrounds working in other fields. Success can also depend on personal connections and luck. Many Japanese artists work in a succession of flexible, unskilled jobs to get by, often for years or even decades. These jobs can include working as waiters, bartenders, hostesses in retail, 
as babysitters or housekeepers in the case of women, or as delivery boys or bike messengers for men. Despite coming from a wealthy country and middle-class backgrounds, migrants face many challenges finding good, secure jobs in New York City due to language limitations and legal status that may not permit them to work. As with other migrant communities, many Japanese are restricted in their options and thus rely on ethnic networks to access jobs. For many, this is not a problem because the jobs they work on the side are in service of facilitating a greater dream, to be a successful artist. In my ethnographic research, I followed these Japanese in their work lives. I spent time in four different venues of Japanese migrant interaction in Manhattan, where I worked alongside young and not so young aspiring Japanese artists. Two of these were what I describe as spaces of aspiration, a Japanese designer's atelier and a Japanese art gallery. Another two were what I call spaces of waiting and anxiety, a grocery store and a high-end Japanese restaurant where I worked respectively as a cashier and as a waiter. In the designer's atelier and the gallery, Japanese artists enacted their creative migrant aspirations and trained for their specialized professions. This was the side of the migrant story that Japanese told people about back at home and wrote about on blogs and social media, celebrating a creative life in New York City where they had a chance to be on the world stage. In the Japanese restaurant and the Japanese grocery store, by contrast, the very same individuals spent just as much time and worked just as hard, but they placed very little value on this work, telling me time and again that it was just for the money and temporary. Staff turnover was high in these places, as if to reflect the low commitment of both employees and employer. And yet, I found these spaces of waiting and anxiety to be important sites for me as a researcher because they revealed how migrants understood ideas about success and its important counterpart, failure. During ebbs in the flow of work, people would stand around and talk about their dreams, goals, and creative pursuits, but equally often engage in gossip and rumor about other Japanese. They reflected on why one person had been working at the grocery store for 10 years, that another worked long hours at the restaurant because she didn't have a life beyond the job, and speculated about the professional, social, and romantic prospects of one another. Listening to how migrants talked about others revealed much about their own anxieties and fears in New York City. For many artists, these fears revolved around the idea of getting stuck in New York, of not only not making it, but being in a permanent limbo, working in part-time jobs indefinitely of not being successful and therefore unable to return to Japan with stories of accomplishment. Some of these concerns were gendered. Anxieties directed at women, for instance, were often sexualized, focused on fears about interracial relationships with minorities, especially African-American and Latino men, as possibly leading to female migrants' disconnection from Japan and failing in their migration ambitions. So given the realities and difficulties of being a migrant and an artist in New York City, what are we to make of Japanese artists' highly idealized view of New York as a world stage on which they can realize their creative ambitions and themselves? You might say their views are unrealistic to the point of preposterousness. One struggling artist said to me, quote, in New York, I might even get to show at the Metropolitan Museum of Art one day. There seems to be a huge gap 
between migrants' views of the city as embodying values like egalitarianism, meritocracy, freedom, and individualism, and the realities of everyday life. Across the Atlantic, in Paris, another popular destination for artists, commentators coined the rather humorous notion of the Paris Syndrome some years ago to refer to the traumatic dissonance that some Japanese travelers and residents appeared to experience when their mediatized fantasies about the city of light clashed with the realities of urban life, including rude waiters and subway pickpockets. Is there also a New York syndrome? After spending time with a couple hundred of these artists, I would say no, there is something more interesting and valuable happening here. It isn't that Japanese artists are naive per se or ignorant. It is more that they, like many of us, simultaneously inhabit the city at two levels. One level is that of the humdrum and grind of everyday life and the struggles, personal, material, economic, professional, legal, and so on, that go with it. At another level, they sustain a vision of the city as an idealized urban context on which they can realize their creative ambitions and authentic selves, which powers their migration and thus has consequence. Their years in New York City, their art, their stories about living in New York that they circulate to others back in Japan. I think that what migrants are living and were telling me about is a kind of transcendence achieved through the intertwining of art and migration. Through migration, an individual can have the chance to start life anew as an adult, transcending past failures or limitations in a new place. Through art, one can transcend one's national or ethnic or racial identities and other particularities of one's background. Art provides an idiom to connect with and speak to a much larger audience. This is, of course, why we can enjoy or be moved by a novel or a painting or piece of music from a place or time very different from our own. Among the artists I met, people disagreed about the degree to which an artist should play up or disguise their Japanese origins in their work. In other words, was it better to be known to a global audience as simply a Japanese artist or just as an artist in more universal terms? This brings us back to Isamu Noguchi, whose international career and varied biography did not prevent some from reading his work at the time in racially essentialist terms due to his heritage, seeing it as Asiatic or Japanese, thereby limiting interpretive possibilities of his work. Yet his global influence and the legacy of his socially engaged work as embodied in the museum endorse an internationalist spirit and the transcendent possibilities of art and mobility that Japanese migrants to New York City today continue to uphold. In a historical moment when, around the globe, national borders are becoming more hardened, national, ethnic, and racial identities are increasingly mobilized as sources of division, inequality, and violence, and political concerns in many places center around fears about belonging and restricting the mobility of newcomers as a response, it is perhaps more important than ever that we appreciate, as Noguchi did, and as artists from all over the world continue to do, the transcendent capacities of art to connect humanity. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of our podcast at GothamCenter.org and sign up to our mailing list to find out about other programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History.